morning we're going to finish up this series that we've been in for since Super Bowl Sunday. And before we do that, I just, I just wanted to say thank you. Your level of engagement since the first of the year has certainly been energizing for the staff and really encouraging for lots of people who have been invested in this place for a bit. So thanks for your trust and trusting us enough to start meddling with cell phones and things like that. And I just... I love that we're a place in a community where if we spend four weeks talking about cell phones, no one's questioning our commitment to Jesus and the things of the kingdom of God. So thanks for letting us delve into those challenges. If you haven't been with us this month, all that to say, we started this series on Super Bowl Sunday called Save Me From My Cell Phone. And we called the first week the modern day Marlboro Man. And, and I think if we're not careful, we're, we're demonizing things like Google and Apple in ways that probably extend or certainly extend beyond what any of us had in mind or especially the research behind this series. But it's a way of making the point that if we're not careful, we're going to lose sight of the fact that there are companies and cultural trends that aren't going to give themselves their own boundaries. And, and I hope what we've sparked in you is some conversation around this idea of how do we take full advantages of the strengths that things like, you know, having this high-powered computer in our back pocket perpetually, how do we take advantage of the strengths and the advantages of that while at the same time minimizing the impact on what it means to, to be human? So we started that way, and then if, if you've not read along, Cal Newport in his book Digital Minimalism, he, he's been, for me, the main resource. I don't know his worldview or connection with God, but I know that his ideas easily parlay and parallel with that of Jesus. But he breaks it down really into three things, three kind of chief concerns. The first one being the impact upon our solitude and silence. And so the first week we, we started talking, a little, or the second week we talked a little bit about solitude and silence. And oftentimes when we talk about solitude and silence, we're talking about our need for the half hour or the hour within the day or the day within the week, or in many cases, even the week within the year. Like we, we need this space. In some professions, we even start talking about things like sabbaticals within the decade. And, and no one's trying to minimize the value of that. In fact, we said then, if, if you want to get together with one of the staff and nerd out about quiet times and reading your Bible, like we would love to do that, like the spiritual practices in that regard. But what we tried to drill down on that week were what we called the interludes, these two-minute chunks of time, these 30-second chunks of time, these 10-second chunks of time as we walk like from our bedroom to the kitchen, as we, as we finish up one meeting and we're ready to start another. I'll, I'll say for me, one of the things that I learned in this series is the, the value of five minutes. Uh, one of the things I've been, I think, guilty of is I'm, I'm a block schedule nerd, sometimes to a fault, but sometimes if I finish something early and there's this 10 minutes between what I finished and then I got to be to this lunch appointment in 10 minutes and it's a three-minute walk for me because I always make you all drive downtown, that, that there's this like, well, what can I do with seven minutes? And that for me would have been a time where it'd be really easy to either be productive on answering email, but even more than that, really easy to justify nerding out on the Broncos or the Cardinals and just doing stuff on my phone. And, and I was reminded in this season, you know, I, I've, we've talked in the past, I, I really value thank you cards and writing handwritten notes. And for me, one of the examples in all of this was, man, I can write like three thank you cards in seven minutes. And some of you are going, that's why we can't read your cards. But <laughs> all the same. So... There's this idea of interludes and these little glimpses of time. Like we, we don't have to stare at a phone as we're waiting for, for our kids to come out of practice. We, we can just be bored and that's okay. And then last week, so the second thing Cal does in terms of the practical is the, the impact of our phones first on solitude and silence and then secondly on relationships. And last week we looked at some research it was some of my favorite research from this whole series that points to the fact that when not given a cognitive task, your brain will naturally gravitate to thinking about relationships. Which that doesn't mean it does that if you're stressed. It doesn't mean that it'll do that if you've got an assignment for your brain. But, but in those interludes, 
we, that, that's when we think about having people over for dinner. That, it seems, is, is when we pr- pray continually, as the Apostle Paul talked about. Like, that's when we recall people. That, that's when we think of people in their circumstances and shoot up prayers that we don't even totally understand the impact they have on the greater world. So there's those. The third thing he brings up is this idea of leisure or, or, or free time. And one of the tricky things about talking about free time in this context is you can't open to the Gospel of John, read about Jesus, and have Jesus say, thou shalt or thou shall not, or thou shall or thou shall not do anything as it relates to your leisure time because Jesus grew up in an agrarian culture. He didn't have the luxury of the leisure time as we know it. He lived in a culture that didn't know the 40-hour work week or the eight-hour work day. A couple of winters ago or a couple of Octobers ago, I got to go to Hannah's husband Scott's parents' ranch in Big Sandy and watching his parents work in the off season for a couple of days, I remember leaving going, I don't, I've never worked a day in my life. So, so Jesus' world is very different, and yet we still have this responsibility to go, well, that's the divine conspiracy. What does it look like to follow Jesus in this context? If Jesus were me, how would he live? So here's the question I want to ask this morning. Is it's, it's this question of, and this is where we actually ended the Hobbit series, but I think it's worth revisiting. It's this question of, what, what if Jesus is in the business of raising the bar and what it takes to make you happy? Now, we talked about serotonin and dopamine and some of those things in the Hobbit series, and I have friends who are reading that doctor's book, and I'm told it's worth the read. But here what I want to drill down on a little bit is, is what, what if, and I don't want to be too conspiracy theory-ish, but I think I'm prone to it this morning. What, what if we've been sold a bill of goods that says, this is what relaxation looks like, and this is what rest looks like, and this was how you get rejuvenated? And in our culture, that largely centers, quite frankly, I think, around screens and alcohol. And I'm not saying that neither one of those have their place, but what if we've been sold a bill of goods about what really is happy? And what if it takes a level of trust to go, okay, God, if I don't do that, I'm trusting that you'll replace it with something that's actually far more restful and far more satisfying. And this for me exposes, there's this self-perpetuating cycle that, that I was... Actually, I I skipped a quote here. Let's go back to that Newport quote and then I'll go to this cycle because I I think this speaks to it really well. Cal Newport says it this way. He says, the most successful digital minimalists, therefore, tend to start their conversation by renovating what they do with their free time, cultivating high-quality leisure before culling the worst of their digital habits. In other words, I think what he's saying is we used to make things and now we consume things. Like we used to do things and, and now, if we're not careful, we just watch other people do things. The great Nolan Ryan has said the difference between kids playing sports today and kids playing sports when I was a kid was that today kids only play a sport when there's a uniform and a coach. Like we, we used to have hobbies, it seems like is what he's saying. And if we're not careful, now we have phones and we have screens. And, and here's where this cycle for, for, for me comes in. And I, I just, my goal this morning is to provoke conversation. It's not important to me, to me that you agree with me. It's just important that I could get you thinking about something. But here, here's, here's personally what I've learned is that uh, because I have no hobbies, therefore, when I have free time, uh, and some of you maybe saw this on social media this week and you're thinking, it's ironic that in this series we're doing more, more posting to social media than ever before. That's not lost on us either. But because I have no hobbies, th- therefore when I have free time, I turn to a screen. Whether that's Hulu or, or that's your phone really doesn't matter. And again, no one's saying there's not a place for those, but this is the cycle. And this is, as I understand it, this is addiction 101. And therefore, b- because I turn to a screen, 
I have no hobbies. And, and this, quite frankly, as best I understand it, is what makes cycles hard to break, whether emotional or physical, whether dealing with your phone or dealing with anything else. It becomes self-perpetuating. It gains momentum over time. Every time we say, what else am I going to do? I'm going to turn, turn, turn to my screen. We just double down on the likelihood that we never do anything but turn to our screen. Now, I'm going to get in this moment at how we break this, but, but I think first that there's an even more important question, and it's this question of who cares? Because if, if this is about creating a moral trope that says you're better if you do things versus look at your screen, then I'm among the first of you to go, I'm not interested in that. But from a perspective of people who are either following God or considering God and looking to God to somehow shape identity, I think there is the opportunity to ask this question, why does this matter to God? And I actually think it's as simple as the first sentence in the Bible. In Genesis 1, God says this, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we, we, we don't know very much about God. If this is all you had, you wouldn't have a lot to go on. It'd be hard to, to distinguish this God from lots of other claims. This is why we have 66 books and, and hundreds of lives lived and thousands of years. This is why Jesus came and put it on display. But if, if this is all we have about God, what did we just learn about this God? This God makes stuff. This God is active. This God is not sitting in a perch like other ancient Near Eastern gods watching people do stuff. This God has his hands in the soil. This God has a bias for action to the extent that it would seem like if you keep reading the chapter, this God is so biased towards doing things versus consuming things that this God has to create his own constraint, his own self-imposed restraint where it's like, okay, on the seventh day, okay, I'll sit on my hands. And there's almost this sense of joy, but also this like, this is counterintuitive to who I am. This God at God's core is active. Now, I recently had a conversation with my friend, Dr. Delamarter, who speaks here often. In fact, he holds the record for the longest sermon ever preached at Narrate. Some of you were here this, this last fall. And we were talking about a series that we're going to do in June. And he said, Adam, and this was really helpful for me. He said, Adam, anytime you read the Bible, there's a, there's a couple layers of questions. The first one is who wrote it and why, and that's important. And historical context is a big deal. We do a lot of work there. But he said there's a secondary question, and it's far more dangerous, but it's just, important, just as important. And the secondary question isn't who wrote it and why, but it's why was it retained? Because at the very least, the last iteration of these scriptures we have, we, we know they came from these people who spent a long time in exile without Jerusalem, without a capital, without any kind of identity formed in the land. And for some reason, they retained these stories. Now, you can play the God card and just shut the conversation down, or you could recognize that humans are involved in this as well. He said it this way, there are certain people who enjoy history just for the sake of history, but mostly we retain the stories that have meaning for our lives today. So here's my question. These people, hundreds of years removed from Moses, from the temple in Jerusalem, these people trying to shape what it means to follow God without any of the sacrifices or anything else they had to go on with before, why did they hold on to this? These people somehow held tightly to the fact that this God loves to make things. And then this God, we still haven't even left the first chapter, says this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the ground. 
What does it mean to be human? Now, again, if this is all we have, we don't have very much. If this is all we have, we don't have the benefit of Jesus who brings so many other things to the table. But what, what did they retain about what it means to be human? What did they retain about what it means to be made in God's image, which is part of what they retain about what it means to be human? We don't know much about what the image of God entails. But we can speculate and scholars have lots of fun with this. But at the core, when you read the text for what it is, what, what does it mean to be human? It, it means to work hard. It means to be busy. It means to put your hands in the soil. It means to move things forward. And therefore, here's what I think is at stake. And if this is going too far, come back next week where we won't be so obtuse. But what if what's at stake is at the very core of what it means to be human? What if to be human is not to fundamentally be a consumer but a creator. We actually planted a church on this value of saying, hey, let's let's not just be consumers of other culture. Let's create culture. That's why things like Ales for Trails exist. Why? Because this God says, be a part of my creation and do things. What if what's at stake is we define school as work and everything else is about consumption? Or we define work as where we find our purpose and everything else is just about numbing yourself till you get to the next day of work. What if, what if we're in danger of confusing what is actually rejuvenating with what isn't? There's a scholar or a guy in Newport's book who notes that, that, that muscles tire, but our minds don't. That, that our minds need variety, but not so much rest. That arriving at bed exhausted is actually kind of the goal. There's this verse in John, and it's among my very favorite things Jesus ever said, and many of you will know it, and if, if you don't, it's my privilege to be the one to introduce you to it. Jesus says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So he, classic dichotomy, right? Good guy, bad guy, Jesus, thief, good stuff, bad stuff. Here's my question, though. When we pick a leader, when we pick a way, which is really what he's getting at, rethink your plans for living, my my way actually brings life. When we do that, and when we choose a thief as our leader, do we always do so knowing that that's what we've chosen? Like, does the thief always identify oneself by having horns and a pointy tail? Is it possible that we can arrive years down the road and realize we've, we've followed a thief, And we've actually missed life. Is it possible to to completely miss what it means to be human? So here's my question. What if, what if Jesus is in the business of raising the bar and what it takes to make you happy? And what if this is especially true as it relates to your free time? And and, and if this sounds too legalistic, if this is too far, that's okay. I just want to provoke a conversation. But here's where I think Cal Newport's 30-day detox comes in. And I told you at the beginning of the series, I didn't want to hit on that drum too hard. In fact, the reason why I couldn't figure out how to do the series for a long time was because I didn't want to create this like pyramid scheme church where it's like, all they ever talk about is the detox. So we've tried to avoid that. But to Cal Newport's thesis, I I think we have to revisit it because here... If I'm understanding him correctly and if I've applied it correctly and I, I've, I've done a fair amount of work here, here here's, so, so the 30-day detox, let me just give you kind of the, the general idea. What Cal Newport's generally saying is that you can't just kind of manage your way to a healthier spot, that you've got to wipe the slate, define your values, 
define what it is you want and what it is you're after and what you want your family to be about and what you want high school to be about and, and rebuild from there. And what he's saying is, is and, and we're going to do some groups. We'll talk a little bit about that if you want to do this. But ultimately what he's saying is you've got to define how do you have to use technology to do your job? Because listen, you probably don't have the luxury of taking a 30-day sabbatical. So there's a lot of work involved in going, okay, so how am I going to create some boundaries and what do I have to use and what do I not have to use and therefore what apps go and what ones do I keep? That to me is as much work as the detox itself. But here's why I think he's getting at this because ultimately what he's saying is when you get rid of the screen, which is what you're trying to do in the detox, what, what, what you're left with is boredom. And that boredom uh, brings up the full cycle of, of grief really. You get angry, you feel silly, you feel sad, you feel depressed. But here, here's, here's his thesis, I think, and certainly my experience. What he's saying is if you'll stay here for a day or two or three, what starts emerging are all these desires and memories you once had. Like suddenly, the guitar under the bed that's been there for six years, like you see it. Suddenly, the, the joy of fixing the doorknob, actually, it sounds fun. Like these interests that you have, you know, we all do this, like, hey, I'm going to take a dance class someday, or hey, I'm going to go to a Grand Street show someday. There's all these things. What happens in the boredom is your mind has the space to go, what else might I enjoy? What else do I want to do with my life? So what I did, because the problem is, is when you're bored, you don't think of what you want to do, right? We, we know this. So I, have, I had this Evernote in my phone, this, just this one note that was just titled something like things that I want to do. I still have it. I forget what it's titled, but it's just this, when I have a random thought, like everything from I need to fix that light switch, which I actually still haven't done, to I want to learn how to make beard balm, like it, it goes there. And in these moments of boredom, you just, you do it. And suddenly you, 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 you discover the joy of doing things. Suddenly you remember like, oh yeah, we used to do this stuff, but now we're, 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 we're too tired, there's one experience in particular that captured this for me. There was a day, it was the first Saturday of my 30-day detox, which I started, I believe it was October 18th when I started mine. It was a Monday. So the, the first Saturday of that, there was this day where, let's just say we had car problems in our house. We were down a car. A friend helped me, was offered to help, a very good friend helped us to get the car back on the road. So at 8.15 in the morning on Saturday, one of my sons and I left the house and with my friend and picked up the car and limped it back to my friend's house and turned some wrenches and took some stuff off and went to the junkyard and we're crawling around in the junkyard. And let, let me just say, some of, some of you, like the junkyard is your happy place. It was my dad's happy place. I hate junkyards. All I can think is snake and dirty. So I, it, it, I, historically, I've not even liked these things. I grew up in Billings where there's rattlesnakes everywhere. So we're digging around the junkyard. We get back to the house. I, I, I was thinking, oh, we'll be done by one or two. I had to shoot a text and cancel the bike ride. And it was about 4.30 by the time we were done. And I was like invigorated. I got to hang out with this good friend and hang out with one of my sons. And suddenly we had a car again and we didn't have to spend thousands of dollars because my friend helped me. And, and then the irony was I had another friend who had invited about a month prior, had invited Teresa and I and some other friends over to dinner on that particular Saturday. And we'd scheduled it around our schedule. So I couldn't just go like, hey, I'm tired. I can't do that. So buzzed home, took a shower, buzzed back across town to my friend's house. We were at his house until about 9.45 that night. I got home. It was Saturday night. My alarm goes off at 4.30 on Sunday mornings. So it's Saturday night. Usually I'm in bed by like 5.45. <laughs> 
And the story I would generally tell myself after a day like that is, I am so tired. And the reverse was true. I mean, was I tired? Yes. But I, I think I've come to realize that's the goal, is to go to bed tired, especially when you're 40 and you can't just fall asleep at the drop of a hat. So tired is a good thing. But more than that, for me, the realization was, whoa, I'm invigorated. Generally, I just said, I, I, I can't see people tomorrow. I'm sober. There's just these stories that I told myself. And here, this is personal to me. Please don't generalize this. But, but here's ultimately what I realized. There's, there's two things that are a part of and have been for as long as I could re- remember my family of origin to relax, involve sports on TV, and alcohol. And what I realized is when I pull those out of the mix, suddenly I actually enjoy people, which is Kind of a good thing, I think. <laughs> so here, 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 I think is the challenge is is what if, what if you what if you actually aren't very well attuned to what it takes to make you happy? Like what what if what if you've forgotten some of the most joy filled things that you do? And what if, quite frankly, there's this undercurrent supported by billions of dollars? that would love for you to consume, not create. Now, a couple of things I want to throw out there because I get that my season of life is different than yours. I don't have three kids in, at home in diapers anymore. I used to work for a guy who very astutely used to say, the parents of toddlers are the most stressed out people in America, and the moment you don't have them, you forget what it was like. I think there's a lot of validity to that. So I, I want to allow, like, I get it. Some of you are like, Adam, stop talking to me. Your kids can stay home alone. There's all these different dynamics. But just, just to level the playing field a little, let, let me give you some math. And I've plagiarized this from an, another book called Everything is Figureoutable. Let's go to that. 30 minutes a day, which I think we could probably all agree is way below probably anybody in this room's daily iPhone use. That's three and a half hours a week. Like, I, I loved a mountain bike. I, I didn't get to mountain bike for three and a half hours last week. 60 minutes a day. Seven hours a week, and this year it's 366 hours a year. 90 minutes a day. And I I know this is, maybe you don't get to chunk your time this way, but it makes the point of, of, I, I get it. Single parents, failing health, there's lots of different dynamics that can cause you to justifiably, it would seem, go, I don't have any free time, but but maybe that's where screen time can come into play and and quickly realize, like, hmm. That might be a trope. That, that, that might be an indication that, that you don't fully trust, that you don't know best what makes you happy. So here's the invitation, and I know this is a little college luxury, and, but the staff, we've put together four of these detox groups. They've all kind of set aside time. I think most of them are, we're going to meet like four or five times over the course of this. So if you're interested, you can see them here. There's a sign-up sheet back at the table. You can always email us. But the idea is if you want to do a detox, we won't bring it up from here again. I mean, maybe we will, but it'll be in passing. So if you don't, that's okay too. But if you'd like to jump in with one of the staff, basically the way it's going to work is we're going to meet once before we start, and then we'll try to start middle of March-ish and end around April, around Easter-ish. It just seems like a great way to do Lent. And ultimately, the, 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 what I've found is, again, the hard work is the front end, and so we'll meet once before that, and then a few times during and once after, because Cal Newport would say the most dangerous time of the detox is the seven days after it's over, because it's so easy to just kind of binge again after that. So if you're interested, there's sign-up sheets out there. If you're not interested, that's okay. I just want to land, ultimately, here, here's the way Cal Newport breaks this down, and I think there's some really good handles here. So let's go to that number one. He says this, prioritize demanding activity 
over passing consumption, passive consumption. And, and ultimately what he's pointing out there is similar to that doctor that we studied at the end of the Hobbit series, that, that physically demanding activity is actually what drives serotonin, which is actually what makes us happy. Second thing he says is use skills to produce things in the physical world. And I think this is one of the real tensions. You can buy an end table from Amazon for half of what you can make one for, and it'll look way better. What if on some level that's actually part of what's messing us up? Like, it's a little irritating. You, you can go buy a frozen pizza from the frozen food aisle for half the price of what you could make one for, but what if that's part of what's messing us up? Use physical schools, skills to produce valuable things in the physical world. I, I wonder if we were to pull our owners who are regularly a part of this thing, I wonder if that's part of their formula, is this realization of, wait a minute, I, I've got space to do things, and actually, it's far more satisfying to give my Sunday to playing the guitar than it is to staring at the screen. I, I don't know. And then the last one he says is this, seek activities that require real-world, structured social interactions. And, and really, the, the two breakdowns to this, what he says in his book that was really helpful to me is, first of all, look for activities that have insider language, insider learning, I, I think what James has done with improv comedy is a great example of that. You go watch them act, you see community happening amongst them. So there's insider language and insider skills. And by the way, he teaches classes all the time if you're interested in that and he didn't pay me for that commercial. So there's, there's insider language and insider skills. There's also, the other thing that he says is paramount here are our shared goals. So the goal isn't necessarily to find stuff we're doing alone all the time, but stuff that we do with others where we're learning, we're using common language and we're accomplishing things together. Ultimately, I, I guess I want to say this. Listen, we, we, we started a church on this idea of, hey, let's tell God's story. Like, let's operate on the assumption that most people, they, they, they know the story cognitively well enough to either accept or reject Jesus. And we said, let's tell the story. Let's put a towel over our arm. Let's serve people. Let's split firewood. Let's host these gatherings. And then we also, in the early days, talked a lot about this idea of organic kingdom bringing. And what we meant by that is not everything has to be an event. Not everything has to have a logo. Sometimes it's just about going about your lives. Here, here's, here's one way I think to think about this. Jesus talked about being salt and light, about being a completely different kind of presence in the world. And if this trivializes Jesus for you, that, that's okay. We just have to agree to disagree. What, what, what if in 21st century high-powered computer in every back pocket, not just a first-world thing, but a third-world thing. What, what if to be salt and light in the world is to reclaim what it means to be human? And to be human is to be a reflection of the image-bearer of God who plays bad music and makes bad end tables and makes bad pizza. A God who does things with people. What if part of putting the divine on display involves being among a community of people who lift our heads and stand in line at the grocery store like while not looking at anything? I'd like to pray. God, this, this is dangerous, Lord, to me in, in one sense because it could create moral treadmills and a, a judgmental culture and so we just thank you in advance for guarding us from that. Uh, we recognize, God, that there are times where we need to look at our phones while standing in line at the grocery store and we don't always know the story that's unfolding. But God, we also recognize that you're fundamentally an artist and, and you created people to, to be a part of your story, your painting, your world. And so God, would you, 
Would you give us the wisdom to know how to incorporate technology into our lives and the strength to live within those boundaries? Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.